Everybody, thank you for listening to the Pentecostals of Louisville podcast today. This is taken from our most recent service. If you find it to be a blessing, would you share it with somebody that you know would be blessed by it as well? You can find us on Facebook if you simply type in the Pentecostals of Louisville and on Instagram if you type in the same. Our service times are Sunday at 11 o'clock and Wednesday at 7 o'clock. And if you've never joined us in person for service before, we'd love to see you there. God bless you. Because the day, this is the song of the redeemed. The Emerson was hitting, hinting at something that the Lord spoke to me. And I never thought about this way. You know, we look at life as a game. And when death happens, the game is over. But God's board is a lot bigger. Death is not the end for God if you're redeemed and washed. It is merely a transition. Because with God... He said, don't worry, Lazarus is not dead. Or don't worry, your daughter is sleeping. They thought he was crazy. But he said, listen, when I get involved, death is not the door that stays shut very long. Because I overcame death, hell, and the grave. So you and I could do the same thing. Though it pains. There's so many burdens going on in this place right now. So many needs and so many. God is speaking so many things. And it could be hard to figure out exactly what God's will is right now. And I just keep thinking about grace. Grace is not just the thing that washes you. Grace is also the knowledge that redeems you. Grace is not just a substance that God puts over you. It is an instruction that God says, walk this and I will free you. And there is so much grace in this building today. There's grace over the past. It says that he redeemed us from our past. He is saving us currently, and we will be saved at our glorification. That means those that have been washed and bought, we are saved and redeemed from what we've done. But right now, God's grace is active. It's not a past tense thing. Right now, God's grace is redeeming us with every breath you take, every time you reach. Right now, grace is still working in our lives. And when you go on to be glorified, in that moment, God encapsulates everything he's done in your life. The next thing you'll know, you'll wake up with a new body that will not feel pain or suffering. A mind that will no longer haunt you and tempt you and echo. You walk around free. The thing that Jesus Christ loved you and I so much, he decided to spend eternity with us. (laughs) What a marital commitment Jesus made. Every single person to ever be created, God's will was that they would walk with me for eternity. That means no matter how broken you think you are, God still loves you. That means no no matter how lost or how much time has been wasted, God still thinks you're redeemable enough. Human beings said, like, we're not redeemable. We're not until he gets a hold of us. We can do nothing for ourselves, but the grace of God does a miracle. God's grace is in this place. If If you'd open your Bibles with me. 2 Corinthians chapter 10, verse number 5. 2 Corinthians chapter 10, verse number 5. If you have it, say amen. There's some serious paper flapping out there. Don't cut yourself. I'll wait for you. It's okay. <laughs> 2 Corinthians chapter 10, verse number 5. I'm reading the ESV. We destroy arguments and every lofty opinion raised against the knowledge of God and take every thought captive to obey Christ. I want to emphasize this last statement. We take every thought captive to obey Christ. We really don't know what that verse means. And I'm going to explain that in the next few moments. What does it mean to take captive every thought? But let me tell you something. As far as being Christian... We let God deal with outward struggles, outward pain, outward fears. But 
When it comes to dealing with our minds, we don't let God deal clearly, step by step, how to be free of your mind. Why would God free us from outward battles, but yet us just go home and die on the inside? That's not God's will. Why would God let fear, doubt, shame, defeat, and sorrow cripple us on the inside, but make us look all right on the outside? If we let the Bible speak, he will show us how to free our mind. The Bible says there's no condemnation for those that are in Christ Jesus. That means you're never stuck. That means no matter what you've done, God can free you. And that means no matter what hits your brain, God has a plan for how to deal with it. Every, if you looked around this room and we all got to show each other our minds, we'd be ashamed. We've all thought it. Am I what I think or am I what I do? I'm kind of confused. I can do right, but a thought in a moment makes me no longer qualified. How do I free myself from my mind? I have faith in my actions, but in a moment I question God in my mind. Who am I? Am I always going to be a contradiction that seems unredeemable? Because I worship God with my hands, but yet I question in my heart. Am I what I do or am I what I think? I see grace on the outside, but how does grace get a hold of my mind? I titled this sermon, The Mind, but it more accurately could be called Grace in the Mind. Grace in the Mind. And I want to let you know that every single one of us can have freedom in this place in our mind. See, the miracle in the mind is way more impressive in my eyes than anything else because no one gets to see when your mind got healed but you. No one else sees when God takes the pain and the confusion but you. It's a harder miracle to believe in because you can't show the scars on the outside. You can't show your lameness being healed on the outside. So every day you got to wake up believing that God got in my mind. There was pain, there was sorrow, there was brokenness. Things that kept me bound for years, but today I'm redeemed. I have grace in my mind. There will be so many miracles in your mind today. Fear that crippled you. Sorrow you thought you couldn't escape. Envy, lust, you pick your poison. You are not trapped by your own head. You are not trapped by your own mind. So I want to preach you for the next few moments. Grace in the mind or the mind. Why don't you lift your hands to me as you lay on your Bible and reach out to God with me. God, we thank you for your love and your mercy and your grace. But God, let us let your grace loose in our mind today. Show us how to picture you, how to operate with you. Show us how to deal with this, God. Show us how to receive your grace. There is victory, not just on the outside. There is victory on the inside. You did not die for us to have outward freedom, but to have inward freedom. You did not die on that cross just to heal our body, but to heal our mind. No matter what we feel or think or have considered, there is a grace if we learn how to deal with it. Let your words speak, God. In Jesus' name, you may be seated. I got to set a framework real quick because context matters. Can you say that with me? Context matters. That's pretty good. Context matters. See, if you take one verse in the Bible and you look at it with tunnel vision, you can draw very wrong conclusions. That's why Christianity is very divided because people take one verse or one passage and they shape how they view God out of one thing. Let me give you some context. You're going to get sick of that word by the time I get done. Let me show you some context. The God of heaven and earth, the, the God that's infinite, above all we can ask or think or imagine, that infinite, perfect God had the difficult task of expressing himself in a book this big. But Merritt, I, I always view the Bible as ginormous because I try to read through it every year. Let me tell you something. A God so pure, so holy, John said there wasn't enough paper for me to write down what he did. He had to constrain himself but not limit himself to express his infinite deity and nature. And he only gave us 66 books. Wow, what a task that God had. When you think about it that way, and the least we could do is let God go cover to cover before we define or limit or shape an opinion because you can mess it up. I know it's a task, but a God so big can, literally, can obviously observe, uh, uh, deserve giving us this much context and we look at it. Now, I know what this message is. I know this message is not, okay? I have no expectations uh, about what, uh, beyond what this message can be, but I'm going to preach to you step by step how to be free in your mind, Okay? So I'm not trying to hit checkpoints that I usually try to hit. Uh, preachers sometimes get trapped in trying to hit a goal. I have been fleeced of my flesh. I have been ripped of my expectations. And I would not preach this sermon ordinarily if God had not told me to. And context matters. This infinite God, 66 books. 
For instance, in John, Jesus looks at the disciples and he breathes upon them. Receive you the Holy Ghost. People take that verse and they say, see, they got the Holy Ghost when Jesus breathed on them. You Pentecostals, but you're talking in tongues and your baptism. You don't have to do that. They took one verse out of context and they drew a wrong conclusion. Because Jesus said in his earthly ministry, just like around that time, when you drink of the waters I give you, rivers of living water, you'll never thirst again. And the Bible immediately says, this he spoke of the Holy Spirit that was not yet poured out upon them because Jesus Christ was not yet glorified. Meaning he had not died on the cross for our sins, buried in the grave, risen on the third day, and ascended into heaven. Tell Nicodemus, unless you're born of the water and the Spirit, you get the Holy Ghost, Acts. That means it showed in Acts. You get the Holy Ghost, speak in other tongues. You get baptized in his name. Unless you do that, you can't see the kingdom of heaven. That's not just heaven thereafter. That's heaven on earth. The kingdom is God's movement in our lives now and there. The kingdom's already happening. You're being prepared to be a good citizen of heaven now. If you, don't, if you don't like walking in heaven now, you may not like it when you get there, and you may not get there. You're prepared to be a good citizen of wherever you're going to end up by how you live today. Come on, somebody. So God redeems us. And he said, Nicodemus said, how can I enter my mother's womb? Uh, uh, the logic of that just kind of frightens me. <laughs> he said, oh, it's a spiritual birth. Well, explain. Actually, I can't because the Son of Man, Jesus Christ, has not yet been glorified, meaning he hadn't died on the cross. He said Jesus will be lifted up like Moses' staff with the bronze serpent in the Old Testament, and all that looked at the staff were healed. He said, when I get glorified, all that look at me, and if you remember, look, Verbs in the Bible don't mean just to be aware. It means to obey. Faith is seeing God and obeying God. He said, all that look at me on the cross and let that knowledge change them, they're going to make it to the other side, but it's not ready yet. I got to die. Wait a second. So are, are we finding a contradiction? He gave them the Holy Ghost, but he says it can't happen yet. When you see a contradiction, get this in your brain. I lack context. Because the central tenet of our faith is this thing is inerrant. This thing is perfect. This thing is God-breathed. That God showed through the hearts and the, the soul of man. He used personalities, but that did not limit him. It said that all scripture is profitable for doctrine. All of it. Even the stuff that bores us. Even the stuff that seems like mere detail. A God so infinite picked every word to express himself. So even Leviticus can stay on our bread programs. Amen? <laughs> then he says in Acts, when he goes up to heaven, not as he's floating before that part happened, he looks at the disciples and he says, hey, wait in Jerusalem, not many days from now, you're going to receive the Holy Ghost and power will come upon you. Wait a second, contradiction, they already got it, right? And he said, power will come upon you. He told them in, in the Gospels, he said that I will not leave you, I will send a comforter, he's going to be within you. And then he said that I will come to you, there's some oneness for you, I will come to you and not leave you. So are we finding a contradiction? No, we just discover greater context. Because you cannot take one conversation with a person and let that define how you view them for the rest of your life. Obviously, my wife would never like me if that happened. You have to view the whole body of work, the whole relationship. And so God is saying, please give me some time. Read more. Because the best commentary on the Bible is the Bible. Before you go Google it because you're confused and get a wrong idea, you keep reading one piece after piece day after day and God will explain himself don't be so afraid of this thing it works it out context matters context matters so Jesus is prophesying why do you know that when he breathed because I have context oh Merritt you're manipulating the Bible that's my name Merritt if you don't know me my name is Merritt Merritt you're manipulating the Bible no, actually, it's called divinely, right, di, di, rightly dividing the word of truth. Paul said, I want you to read and find it here and find it in the old and find it in Psalms. And I want you to piece together the whole idea is not manipulating. It's studying to show thyself approved. Isaiah speaks about redemption. You can't view redemption right without Isaiah. And you certainly can't view it right without Jesus. You can't cut out the old and say you understand the new. It goes together. You're not manipulating it. You're studying it. You're not stretching it. You're piecing it together. Because all of human history and the conversation they have with God is right here. And we take one moment. God said go back and look at every conversation before you get confused. Context matters. That's not even my sermon. That's just the, I just set that up. I just... I just want to understand when I say context. Here's the sermon. 
We have misunderstood what the Bible says about the mind. Because we've taken small verses and shaped full, fleshed out ideas about grace and redemption. Okay? We cling to verses like, as a man thinketh in his heart, so is he. If he sits down to eat, we drink with you, but his heart's not with it. That's who he is. As a man thinketh in his heart, so is he. And we have drawn these conclusions. No matter what I do, I am what I feel and what I think. No matter how obedient I am, I'm always tainted by what hits my brain. And there's so much condemnation because you can obey your whole life. You could be a stinking prophet and raise the dead. But one thought hits your brain, you're like, I can't even make it. That's what we've thought. And then there's other people. We call those, you know, we don't want to be these people, but we're scared of it. You know, the, 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 the grace Christians, that faith is just speaking and grace is just a salve or a boo-boo but no change. They think, no matter what I do, I'm just my intentions. So if my heart is right and my obedience really doesn't matter because God looks on the inside, not the outside. Context matters, though. That's not what God is saying. We take the one verse and draw our own conclusions. Then it says, out of the abundance of the heart, the, the mouth speaks, and the, the heart is vile and deceitful above all things, and inside of it, it's murder and jealousy, and within all of us is all the wicked things in our minds, and so what we do is we draw a conclusion. No matter what I do or not do on the outside, it does not matter, because I've already lost the battle of my mind. That's what we think. It gets worse when you open Matthew. Preachers have preached this. We've all grappled with it. Jesus said, hey, the law says if you murder somebody, that's not a good thing to do. But I have you know that if you are angry, sinfully angry. See, the ESV says angry. I don't like that. The KJV, say, KJV says sinfully angry. Because you can be angry and sin not. We have such a passive version of Christianity. God is angry against falsehood. God is angry against sin. You can be angry in defending the word of God. Just don't be sinfully angry. We don't want to pacify God. And God isn't trying to pacify us. He said be angry and sin not. If sinful anger is in your heart towards your brother, spiritually it's like you already stoned him oh wait a second does that mean if i think something mean about brother russell i had to turn myself in from murdering a man obviously that's not what that means wait a second that's the nicest guy ever oh that's obviously not what it means then he says i have you know that it was written in the law do not commit adultery and you haven't done that good for you but if you look upon a woman with lustful intentions in your heart, you've already committed adultery with her. Oh, my goodness. The first time you think a stupid thought, go ahead and turn in your license, sit yourself down from ministry because you are what you think, and we're done. Sorry, Pastor, I had an illicit relationship because I had a stupid moment in my brain. We obviously know that's not what it means, but then why do we let our condemnation tell us whatever you think you already have failed, no matter what you considered, you've already messed up. Why do we believe it when the enemy says it? But when I say it out loud, you're like, oh, of course. We're all theologians and we speak it out. But in our brain, we fall to things. The enemy has always used verses. Satan spoke to Jesus. Did God not say this? Satan spoke to Eve. Did God not say this? The Bible is the best. Satan is the best Bible quizzer you will ever meet. That man is learned. And he will twist it. That's not what Jesus was saying there. Jesus was speaking, here's the context, to the Jewish people that thought, I don't need Jesus or redemption. I can just obey these rules and be holy. He said, oh, man, have you met yourself? You're rotten on the inside. No matter how good you do on the outside, you need my redemption. But Romans says, when I get redeemed, that doesn't mean I can live however I want. When I get redeemed, I get to walk in the Spirit. He gives me freedom on the inside so I can have freedom on the outside. You can't skip inward out. You need Jesus. And they're like, oh. He said, the law, you can't even live up to it. The law is to show sin. But when you get my spirit and my blood, then you can finally, Romans 8, those that walk in the spirit can fulfill the moral hope or obligation of the law. Because now you're empowered. And so he's telling Jewish people, listen, you've been so concerned about doing right on the outside. And you've been manipulating it. You haven't been doing that right. You've been twisting the letter and not keeping the spirit. You're saying you're not doing these things, but you're not watching your mind. You're not keeping your heart. You're saying you don't murder, but you gossip and you tear apart. He's saying you have an outward idea, but no inward conviction. It sounds simple, but these people do not understand that the God of heaven and earth sees my insides. Yes. That was a new thing to them. Context matters. <gasps> it matters. So what God is saying is not, he's not saying that inward sin, listen closely. Is God saying that inward sin, when we dwell or ponder, is the same as committing an outward act of sin? Yes and no. Contradiction? No. Context. Yes 
and no. All sin is sin when it comes to redemption and getting to heaven. The Bible is very clear that if I thought a bad thought and I did the act, I got to bend the same knee, pray the same repentive, broken, contrition spirit kind of prayer, and I need the same amount of grace. The grace is powerful. It doesn't matter what you've done, where you've been, the same repentance happens to go to heaven. But you know, God's very clear that how he treats sin on earth is not the same as how he treats it in heaven. Did you know that? In Titus, it says you have to be a deacon elder. You have to do some certain things, you, and you can't have done other things. He's very clear that God treats all sin the same redemptively and salvationally, but God does not treat all sin the same relationally. God does not ask us to treat all sin the same when it comes to ourselves. If I lie to you, God asks you to deal with me a certain way. If I murdered your neighbor, he asks you to react a little differently. And so we, we see this in the Bible, but yet our condemnation twists it because the Apostle John had to write to a new church that was too spiritual for its own good. Well, if sin is sin, we can do whatever that grace may abound. He said, no, no, no. Let me tell you something. If someone sins and no one, and it does not end in death, I want you to pray for them. Okay, pray for them. If someone sins and it ends in death, don't pray for them. For all sin is unrighteousness, but not all sin ends in death. Is he saying that certain sins don't end in like death? Because death, when it comes to sin, is like hell. What is he meaning? He the Bible says that for the wages of sin is death, that all sin ends in spiritual death. So he's not meaning that, uh, that, uh, that certain sins don't end in punishment. He's saying not all sins end in physical death. Why? It's so silly, Merritt, that he's saying that. That's so simple. He had to speak to new Christians that just don't have to speak in tongues, and they're flitting on cloud nine. They don't know anything going on, and they're like, listen, all sin is sin spiritually. He's saying if somebody kills somebody, don't pray that God... That God does something. The land has its laws. God set up capital punishment, not man. And he said, but if someone sins, like a normal, quote, unquote, pray that God shows them mercy and grace ups it out. He said, all sin is unrighteous, but not all sins in death. He's literally saying, all sin is bad, but not all sin ends in somebody dying at your hand or you dying at your own hand. He's setting a precedent that on earth we deal with sin differently and so does God. But in heaven, they all require the same repentance. Are you sure, Mary? Let me tell you something. If God treated inward failure the same as outward commission, he could never use Elijah. He could never use Moses. You'd be ashamed if you saw their heart. But God wouldn't use people that did the act in the Bible, would he? I'm sorry, you, you didn't consecrate. You weren't obedient. God cut people out, and God had to redeem some people, and God had to work with people. But God treated outward commission different than inward failure because nobody could be a prophet if that was the case. Nobody could stay married. Nobody could lift their hands with any, with any purpose or passion. Nobody could teach Sunday school if God saw the inside like the outside when it comes to how he treats us. Even your relationship with God daily, he does not treat it the same. We know this. We know this. But why do we let our flesh tell us otherwise? Am I what I think or am I what I do? You're both. Let me give you some context. I told you I'm sick of that word. Let me give you some context. It's like two sides of the same coin. The Bible is very clear that, that what you do on the inside is very important. That, that if you have wickedness on the inside, it gives birth to bad fruits on the outside. You get Jesus on the inside, it births fruits of life on the outside. That my internal condition, my actions are a symptom of my internal condition. But you know, there's a lot of Bible that, also, that says the flip side too. That no matter what you think, no matter what you feel, that your obedience can save you. Let me break it down this way. All of us weren't saved at one point, unless you came out like John. All of us were not saved at one point. And so you were not right with God on the inside, were you? No, you didn't. Your flesh was bad. And so, but one day, you watch your feet walk down to an altar. I don't really want the things of God. I don't even feel that spiritual. But my feet are walking down to the altar. And your mouth began to act a little crazy. It began to say, God, I'm sorry. What? God, I don't want this anymore. What are you doing? And you begin to lift your hands. And you begin to speak in other tongues. And then you walked up to the baptismal waters you got in and they baptized you and in a moment you became a contradiction your flesh did not want God but in obedience you began to reach to God and because you said it with your mouth and you obeyed it with your feet God changed your insides because you did right on the outside well give yourself two weeks and all of a sudden your sin comes back and your outside's rotten again and your inside's rotten. And now you're back to, oh, I'm only what I am on the inside. And, and you're praying, God, change my heart. Change my heart. Because if you don't change my heart, no matter what I do on the outside, it does not matter. And God is saying, listen, 
Stop begging. If you keep obeying on the outside, I don't care what you feel. I don't care what tempts you. I don't care what you think. Your obedience will keep you free. Because when your mind is messed up, if your feet stay consistent, God will change your mind again. God will change your mind. I'm not saying have a bad insight, obviously. I'm saying when your mind goes wrong, because it will, you keep your feet going. We get so condemned thinking that anything I consider, anything I fall to, it is just as bad as giving in. We've all heard that. You've already thought it. Might as well stay a while because the deed is already done. All outward failures have started with that same conversation. You've already thought it about them and your feet start going. You've already thought that about yourself. Your feet start going. If you could realize that I'm not just what I think, I am what I do. I don't care. How, if you knew the stuff that goes on in ministers' minds, but yet our feet stays obedient, we're not any more holy than you. The, a victorious person is not any more holy than you. The, it's, the difference is some people stay more obedient than others. My mind is just as humanly as yours, but I pray to God that my feet keep going in the right direction no matter what I think, no matter what I ponder, no matter what I feel like I'm tempted to do. You are not your impulses. You are your obedience. We are too condemned because you cannot escape your minds. But don't undervalue what you've done with your feet. People live for God their whole life, and they don't feel more saved today than they did yesterday. But they're walking in obedience, and they're obeying God and worshiping, but their mind is still tormenting them. Don't wait until your mind goes away, until your flesh goes away before you believe in your worship, before you believe in your calling, before you try to lead your family. Because, spoiler alert, your flesh is not going away, but your obedience can overcome it. Paul said this in Romans 7 and 8. He said there's a fleshly person. There's a carnal person. And there is the spiritual man. Before you get the Holy Ghost, you're a spiritual person and a carnal person. You're human and you're spirit. Even before you get the Holy Ghost. Because God, he sculpted Adam out of the dust of the earth. Sculpted the body. Then he breathed into Adam's body. He gave Adam a soul, a spirit. He made him a man with a dual nature. We are all one person, but with two natures, okay? And Paul is saying, and he was jumping on my message earlier. I got a little sweaty. I was like, oh, Lord, let's wet my powder. Paul is saying that there's two of me, and I would fight with that person. I tried to get my spirit man to overcome my fleshly person, but the things I did not want to do, I did. And the things I wanted to do, I couldn't do. My spirit was screaming, be free, but my body kept bounding. Why? Because your spirit man is like the driver, and your body is like the car. And without Jesus, you could not drive the car. You drove like a 14-year-old girl. It was awful. But then when you got the whole, I'll let this sit there for a little bit. That's how bad you were. But grace found us. Amen. Hallelujah. Sin was that wicked. No one's ever used a 14-year-old girl to represent, like, sin like that. It's so funny. She's like, hey, what? why me? But in Romans 8, he says, but when I got the Holy Ghost, it put to death the deeds of my flesh. What he's saying is, I used to drive by myself, but I was not very good. But Jesus got in the car with me and began to direct me. And he said, if you walk in the Spirit, meaning the more I listen to him, the more I let him guide me, the better driver I get. And as long as he stays the car with me, and as long as I obey him, I will keep on the straight and narrow and make it. When you get the Holy Ghost, God tips the scales. You're fighting with two people inside of you, but the Holy Ghost, Jesus Christ, resides on the inside. He tips the scales in the spirit, man, or woman's favor. And it changes everything. But Paul says something interesting in Romans 7. He says, when I committed sin, it was not I that did it, but the sin nature that dwelt within me. When I committed sin, it was not I that did it, but the sin nature that dwelt within me. Wait a second. Is Paul saying that he's not responsible for what his body does? No context matters. This is the guy that said, can we just sin and just repent? No, God forbid, you're going to go back into bondage. This is the guy that said that the wage of sin is death. He's not saying that he's not responsible. He's also saying, though, there's two of me, and I'm aware of it. If you get in your car and you hit somebody on purpose, you can't tell the officer, I'm sorry, it was the car. <laughs> you're responsible for what you use to hurt people. And what your vehicle, what this body does in sin can send you to hell, but what it does in obedience 
things can keep you on the straight and narrow to heaven. You're responsible for the vehicle you drive. But Paul is trying to be very clear. You have to acknowledge your dual nature. It was not I that did it, but the sin is what in me. Because if you think you're only one person, whatever you think, you'll think that's the truest version of you. No matter what you feel, you'll think that's all you are. And if you think that's all you are, you won't fight for anything more. But if you can go, oh, that was my flesh. But I know I'm bought with a price and God's spirit is, is holding mine. I know that in this moment that was human, but I can overcome it. No condemnation means that when my flesh breaks, I can realize I'm not all that I feel. There is a spirit man and woman. That's my true identity in Christ. Doesn't mean you're not responsible. But when your check engine light comes on and your tire goes out and your transmission messes up and you have to get an oil change, you don't throw your hands in the air and say, I'm such a bad driver because you expect that your car is going to mess up. What God is saying, don't be so offended. Don't be so afraid. When your flesh messes up, it's always going to be tempted. It's always going to struggle. But you are two people fighting over control. You're not just what you feel. And if you think that you are one and the same, you will take it so literally. You'll take so much ownership. That's what condemnation is. If you think that's all you are, you won't try to let God fix it. You won't try to let God fix it. And God is telling us that there is victory if you let him in. For there is no condemnation in the flesh. There is no condemnation. Meaning I am not trapped. Meaning if I let God deal with it, I can overcome it's an amazing thing. But how do we deal with that? You're telling me that, that, that I'm not what I think, but I, but I am what I do. And uh, how do I deal with this? And then we come to the verse, take captive every thought into obedience. What does it mean to take captive? Here's how we have all tried to take thoughts captive. God, get it out, get it out, get it out. Please get it out. Oh, dear God, get it out of my mind. How's that work for you? Is it going well? What happens? It gets worse. It's like quicksand. The more you try not to think about it, the more you do. <laughs> oh, there's a joke. I'm going to let it fly. The more you think about it and the more you try to fight it, the worse it gets. So what does it mean to take thoughts captive? What does it mean? I thought it was just God, get it out and run from it, all these things. No, no, no. How do you take thoughts captive? Because you know your mind cannot comprehend negative commands. Your mind cannot comprehend the negative. For instance... Your mind's like a computer. Your mind is like a river. It keeps flowing. You can't stop it. Your mind is like a screen that always has input. You cannot stop thoughts. You can't. I don't care what you thought, what you read. You cannot stop thoughts. And what it means is this. If I told all of you, listen very closely. This is an action part of my lesson here. Do not think of a purple elephant. You've all failed. You've all thought of it right then. I'm so glad that that isn't a salvation causing thing because you all did not make it. You all thought of it. But I told you not to do it. And your brain said, oh, don't do it. Don't do it. I'll be stronger. Don't do it. You did it. Why? Because your brain cannot respond to negative commands. So, Merit, how do I take my thoughts captive? It says in Philippians, think on these things. Whatsoever things are holy. Whatsoever things are pure. Whatsoever things are righteous. Think on these things. It says if your eye be good, if you look at good things, your body will be good. If you look at bad things, your body will be bad. Job said, I made a covenant with my eyes. I will not look upon a woman lustfully. You take thoughts captive by not running from them but replacing them with God you can't run from sin sin catches you but you ran to the cross and Jesus freed you you can't run from doubt doubt will catch you but you run to God and God will free you you don't run from hell because it will catch you but you run to God and he will help you you don't run you go to something and so your mind the Bible says that the man the spirit of a man or woman is like a house and if a bad spirit is within it and gets out if you don't fill it up fast more bad spirits will come what the Bible is saying is that your mind and heart have a limited capacity and so every day you have an opportunity to open up your mind and fill it with scripture and fill it with holy things because when the enemy comes knocking, you can open the door and say, I'm sorry, the house is full. You can't sit at the table today because my mind is holy. I'm thinking about God, fear and doubt. There's no room for you. You don't run from it. You replace it. You fill up the house and freedom will stay. Let me give you, uh, this is how it's going to look in your life. I know what this sermon is and not. Okay, very practical. Let me, you thought a thought. Fear, doubt, envy, whatever. Pick your poison. Oh! Don't freak out. 
You think the thought, well, that was my flesh. Hmm. God, you saw that. And Lord, I don't know if I thought about too long. I don't know if I sinned or it's just temptation. I don't know. But God, I give it to you. I'm sorry and I'm human. I give it to you. I trust in your grace. I trust in your mercy. And I, and I believe that I am saved. And Lord, thank you for my family. Thank you for my life. Thank you for my church. You begin to replace it. God, thank you for my job. Thank you for the Holy Ghost. You don't leave just digging out sin. You fill it up with something else. By the time, you, by the, time the moment is over, you won't be limping and saying, I can't believe I thought that. You're going to be so pumped up with God's grace, so filled with your mind that you're going to walk out with victory. Why would God free you on the outside and leave you to be bound on the inside every time you go to the mall? Why would God allow you to be free on the outside, but every time someone says something bad to you, you fall in your mind? God would not free you and redeem you and ask you to dress right just to let your mind go. Grace reaches the inside just as much as the outside. Don't, I, I can't get this across clearly enough. Do not run. Don't. You look to God. Because the more you fight it, envy festers. The more you mess with it, it festers. Paul said there's some sin, doubt, I want you to help them, pray for them. Some sin's like fire, and you don't deal with it, so you can pull them out of the fire and not get burned. He says some sin, though, it's so dirty, I don't even want you to get near it unless you touch the clothes that touched it. He's saying there's some people you can't help. Go get a brother or sister that can help them because that fits too close to home. There's some sins, if you try to fight it, it will mess you up. But if you stop and you don't get condemned, you say, God, I'm not just what I felt that moment. I am my steps. Take it from me. I give it to you. Because my absolute favorite verse in the Bible, and I believe it's one of Brother McGahey's favorite verses too. When my heart condemns me, oh, when my heart condemns me, God is greater than my heart. Because my heart has slammed the gavel in time after time and said guilty. But when I read the word, I don't have to know if I thought about it too long. I don't have to know if I messed up. If I just throw myself at God's feet, he knows that I tried. He knows that I met. He knows. And I can say, God, my mind said I didn't work hard enough. But you know, God, when my heart condemns me you know I want my mind to be holy I want my heart to be true you know my heart condemns me God is greater than my heart my heart condemns me God is greater than my heart there is a difference between sinning in your mind and being tempted in your mind there is a line. I don't know where it's at, but there is a line. You can be tempted. Just because it hits your brain does not mean you've already, you've already sinned in your brain. Because your brain doesn't stop. I don't know how long you have to think about it, how long you have to think there, I mean, how long you have to ponder it before it becomes sin. But there is a line. There is. You don't have to know the line because, like I said, if you do your best and not lie to yourself, you won't have to find out where it is. Like some things, I don't have to know if it's sin or not. I'm not going to get near enough to find out. If you say, God, no matter what happens, I give it to you, you won't have to know. But not everything that hits your brain is a sinful, committed thing in your mind. You know, I know this. And I've been struggling to figure out how to do this altar call. Because I have to say this point, and your legs would go numb if I had you stand. But then when I end this, I'm going to ask you to stand. And usually that ends with weird, awkward moment. We lose some momentum. So I just pray that you show me some grace. When I end with this, I'm going to ask you to stand. I'm going to pray over you. And I'm just asking that you fight through your flesh as I'm fighting through mine. And you make this altar call something that can change your life. Is that okay? Okay. All four of you made me feel better of myself. The rest of y'all, whoo, thanks a lot. Thanks a lot. There is a difference because Jesus Christ was all man, but yet all God. Wait a second. We really don't believe that sometimes. That Jesus Christ was all man, but yet all God. How could God allow himself to be tempted and give himself the capacity to fall, but yet be all God? Maybe he was kind of human. No, it said that he was Adam, the second Adam, Adam 2.0. He robed himself in weakness. He robed himself in our problems, so he had victory in the spirit that lived within him. God did something amazing. God had one nature when he was in heaven, 
But when he allowed himself to be born in the flesh in Mary's womb, he gave himself two natures. Here's oneness. One God, two natures. Wait a second. I thought that I'm one person, two natures. Yes. God did not have that weakness until he decided I will become like you. I'll be one God, but with two natures. I'm not two different gods. I'm just like you. Now I'm wrapping myself in the weakness too, but I'm never going to fall to it. That's what oneness is. Never failed. It's that we have a high priest that understands us. Having been tempted in every way. Tempted every way. Never failed to it. Never sinned. He had the complete capacity to fall like us, but never did. That's how amazing God was. A God so holy put himself on the tightrope of humanity, but yet he never stumbled. He never messed up. He dealt with it. How can that be so? Because temptation starts in the mind. Are you telling me? That God in the flesh thought things. I thought, here's what your flesh tells you. As soon as it hits your mind, you've already failed. There is a line. Just because you considered it does not mean you've sinned in your brain yet. Because Jesus Christ had all those things hit him, but he dealt with them and he never sinned. What? That means you can take thoughts captive. Here's how he did it. He was going to the Garden of Gethsemane. He began to pray to God the Father. What? The same way you wrestle with your spirit from your flesh, the same conversation you had. Don't do that, stupid. Do it. Don't do it, stupid. That's what Jesus was having in the garden. His human side, Jesus was saying, I kid you not. Sin is the miss the mark, right? God's here, and we go here. Jesus the man was saying, I know I... I came to the earth. I know you, you, you robed yourself in flesh. I know I'm the perfect imprint of your nature. I know that all this, I know I was born for this purpose. But is there any other way besides dying on the cross? If not, let your will be done. But if there's any other way, let this cup pass from me. He prayed that three times over like an hour and a half. He prayed so hard he began to sweat like blood. An angel showed up and had to comfort him. This was not fake. This was not for show. He was having to submit his humanity to his divinity. He was having a battle of wills. If you were in Jesus' shoes and the first time you thought, maybe something else at the cross, your flesh would say, oh, you already sinned. You already messed up. You already considered it. You've already failed. If Jesus Christ can ask, is there any other way? If Jesus Christ can think, maybe not the cross, and get it out of his heart before he ever failed, I don't care what you've considered. I don't care what you've thought. You are not what you think. Here's what he did. He went to the garden. He bent his knee. He said, God, you see it, and I don't want it. He got up out of that garden. He took his hands and his feet in obedience, and he nailed himself to that cross. He said, I know I thought it, but I'm not what I think. I got it out. I replaced it with your will. Not my will, but thy will, God. I take my hands. I take my feet to the altar. And I'm going to get up on that cross because I'm not just what I considered. Can we all stand in this place? If Jesus Christ could consider it, but never sin in his brain about it. If Jesus Christ had to go into a prayer room and say, God, get it out of me. We all need it. What I'm asking is as I begin to pray over you, that you turn this altar into your garden of Gethsemane. That you tell God, here's what I thought. Here's what I considered about my wife. Here's what I considered about my family. Here's what I thought about my pastor. And I give it to you. I will not be what I think. God, right now, let your mercy flow in our minds and our hearts. God, let your grace encapsulate us. God, I give you every fear. I give you every question. I give you every doubt. I give you every echo of my flesh. I've considered a lot of things, God, but I'm not just what I feel. I'm what I obey. I've thought a lot of fear. I've had a lot of doubt. I've been jealous a lot, but I'm not just what I feel in the moment. I'm what I do for a lifetime. Let your grace be in my mind. God, replace it with holiness. Replace it with your word. Replace it with truth. Replace it with life. Replace it with life.
God, remove the flinch. Remove the hesitation that we feel in those moments. Let grace uphold us. We cannot stumble. We cannot be afraid. But if we tell it, if we confess our sins, He is faithful and just to forgive us. God, I will trust you. Just, I acknowledge it. I, I have a flesh, but I also have a spirit. Jesus. What ministries can be born when there's no condemnation? What strength can be born if there's no condemnation? What life can be held if there's no condemnation? Who can win somebody? Who can be used against the Spirit? How would our marriages look if there's no condemnation? How would our churches look if there's no condemnation? Testament word for promise. A promise is just between you and I. A covenant is between us and God. There's so much mistrust in our relationship sometimes because we know what our mind looks like and we think, can I ever look at them and be what they need me to be? We look at our kids. We look at people that we lead. We look at people that we preach to. We look at our spouses and we wonder, can I ever look them in the eye with confidence knowing what my mind is? I was reading about how Saul kept throwing spears at David and Jonathan. And I thought, why don't they get the picture God, that, that Saul throws spears? And God spoke to me and said, then why don't you understand that your flesh will always throw spears at you, no matter how holy you get? He began to tell me that your spirit man is like David, wants God's will. And the fleshly man is like Saul. And Saul will never stop throwing spears. But the more spiritual David gets, the more he's better at dodging it and dealing with it. When you wake up tomorrow and your Saul throws a spear, don't you get so locked up in condemnation you let him pin you to the wall. So what else to do? 
They're going to begin to play as we begin to pray. I want you to make a covenant. I'm not wanting you to promise, God, I'll do better. That's not what this is. God, I'll fight harder. No, no, no. God, I will trust in your grace. God, standing with my family, holding the person I got to lead, looking at someone I respect, God, I'll make a covenant for them. God, I'm not going to become so condemned that I stop walking the way I need to walk for them. I'm not going to give up. I am what I do. I know I'm going to think some crazy stuff, but I'm not going to run out. I'm not going to give up. I'm not going to implode because I'm going to deal with it in my garden. Shut up. Why don't you lift your hands right now? God, we make this promise before you. God, we make this promise before you. God, we're going to trust. We're going to trust for our families. We're going to trust for those we have to save, those we have to lead. We're going to trust for our spouses. We're going to stand with confidence. We're going to stand in holiness. We're going to stand in purity. I know I've thought it. I know I've considered it. But I'm not going to give up. I will not be pinned to the wall. I will not be tripped up. I'm going to keep walking. I'm going to keep believing. I'm going to stay committed. I'm going to hold their hand every day. I'll acknowledge my duality. And I will not give up on the way you call me to be. Every father, every mother, every husband, every wife, every minister, every young person, every follower, every leader. You are what you obey. And you are what you do. You are given to God. My heart is me. God is greater than my heart. took place between light and darkness, good and evil, happened on Golgotha, and it's called the place of the skull. I think it's ironic that the greatest battle that was ever won for us happened at the place of the skull, the place of the mind. And if the Lord thought it was important enough to symbolically win that battle, at the place of the skull, then if you won the battle then, then he means for you to have the victory in your mind and to win that battle today. And with the Lord's help and with the renewing of your mind and with the renewing of your thoughts, amen. You don't have to be held back. Brother Merritt, thank you so much for preaching about a subject about a topic that's not always talked about and talking about it very eloquently but yet very simplistically at the same time that I'm not what I think just because I thought you know one of the ways that can help you win this battle is you can keep some things out of your mind before they ever get there Our senses, we have gateways to our soul and to our mind. Some of the thoughts that come to us, the tempting thoughts, the hindering thoughts, the sinful thoughts, are things that we've allowed to have access in our life and access to our mind. So one of the ways to start winning the battle of your mind is to start limiting who and what has access to my mind. I can't tell you how important that is this morning. Well, if I'm thinking these thoughts and I'm battling this day in and day out, well, then there has to be a source. You're consuming something 
that is promoting these thoughts in your mind. So either you, you, you're allowing something to come through the gateway. You're hearing it. You're seeing it. You're around it. You're experiencing it. And then later on, your mind's like a hard drive, right? And the flesh, like Brother Merritt said, is its nature is to throw spears. And it's going to attack us. And it's going to ridicule us. And it's going to bring ourselves down. But you can win the battle of the mind. I, I heard this years ago. I wish it was original, but I think it goes so well with what Brother Merritt said today. There are some thoughts that you'll get and that you'll have. Maybe you'll be at work. Maybe you'll be at the mall. Maybe you'll be in church or wherever. And a thought will come into your mind that will be so far off the wall. Like, it's hard to explain why that thought even came in there. And sometimes we're like, well, what just happened? I want you to know that in the spirit world, you can't see what's happening. You don't know, like when you're around somebody, you don't know what they've opened themselves up to. And in the spirit world, you know, someone, when you meet somebody, sometimes you'll say, well, there was a real connection there. Well, that connection sometimes is not just that we got along and our personalities clicked. But there are connections far beyond personality. There are spiritual connections that happen. And in the spirit, spirits are constantly trying to connect with us. That's why we got to walk in the spirit so that we don't fulfill the, the lust of the flesh. we got to walk. So there's constantly spirits that are trying to connect with us. Like feelers. When you're in a crowd, you're in a room, and a thought comes in, you're like, What? What, 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 what just happened there? It doesn't necessarily mean that your mind generated it or that you consumed something in your life that caused that thought to come. It could be there's somebody else in your vicinity that has exposed themselves to things and their spirit is seeking for a connection. Brother Griffiths, what do you mean? I'm going to tell you that in the ministry I have seen Someone that had a problem with adultery, a repeat offender, sit, not here, I'm not saying here, but sit on the back row. And then somebody come in for the very first time that nobody knows, but they too have a problem with adultery. Nobody knows about it. And they come sit on the front row. Inevitably, within one or two services, out of all the group of people here, they end up finding each other. I have seen it. Talking in the vestibule. Some of you are like, I'm going straight to the car today. <laughs> but what I'm telling you is there are spirits and connections. And when you get a thought, it's not because you're evil. It's because there's a spirit looking for connectivity and you need to do exactly what Brother Merritt said. You said, uh-uh, not today. Greater is he that is in me than he that is in the world. Don't think that you're ugly or vile because that thought came in. I'm telling you, somebody else is dealing with that, and they're trapped in it. There's a spirit upon them, and their spirit is looking for connection. Just because it flickered in your mind doesn't mean it connected with you. What it means is the spirit is telling you, be, beware. Be cautious. There have been times that me and Sister Griffiths have felt something. We've looked around the room, and the Holy Ghost will point out, uh-oh. That's the person dealing with it. That's the person having an issue with it. And you can feel that. So let the Holy Ghost lead you. Just because that thought comes in doesn't mean that you're evil. It just means that per something's trying to connect, but you're going to, it's not going to. Brother Griffiths, that seems a little spooky. It's not spooky. It's real life. It's just real life. And it's what happens in the spirit world. I've seen it not just with people struggling with adultery. I've seen it with all kinds of, of, of fleshly sins. And inevitably, those two people come. Why? Because there's a connection, and there's something that happens in the mind. But we can win the battle. But, but Brother Griffiths, that was an incredible message today. That was an incredible message. That was an incredible message.
and, uh, and we can win the battle of our mind. Amen. We can be free. We can be free. And your obedience is the key to that. Amen. I love you. Before you leave today, shake somebody's hand. Let them know how much you love them. Please keep, please keep the Gordon family in your prayers this week and also the Winthrow family, Brother, Don, Brother Dontre and his family. Amen. They need the grace and the strength of the Lord. Amen. God bless you. We love you. Amen. We appreciate you today. Amen. We'll see you Wednesday night.